Amen. Well, please stay standing for the reading of God's word. We are in 2 Samuel chapter 8 this morning. We read. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methegamah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beda and from Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toi. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Saraiah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Maybe some of you are wondering if all the pastors decided to go on vacation at the same time or if they thought it would be funny to give this passage to the intern. <laughs> well, I suspect the latter. Uh, my name is Eddie Kiger, and I'm a pastoral intern here. For those who aren't aware, the 6-4 Pastoral Internship is a two-year program meant to equip men who are aspiring to pastoral ministry. And while I'm up here, I just want to express really how grateful I am for the sacrifice that Pastor Scott makes by investing into future leaders and pastors and even church planters. And the fruit of, yeah, yeah, praise God for that. And the fruit of that work has just been incredible to see as the Lord has been raising up new workers for his kingdom. And uh, as for myself, I really just signed up for the internship to be more equipped, kind of wanted to stay under the radar, but I guess the Lord had different plans, so here we are. All I know is you're stuck with me for the next half hour. I asked security to lock the door, so let's get into it. The title of the message is The Triumphant Warrior King. The Triumphant Warrior King. Well, we're coming out of this glorious seventh chapter where God makes his covenant with David and David prays this profound prayer in response. And let's be honest, after that, chapter eight just 
seems like one of those chapters you might skim through in your Bible reading. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, let's see. David defeated the Philistines. No idea how to pronounce the name of this city. He defeated Moab and a bunch of other guys, took this guy's money, took that guy's money. All right, I get the point. But what seems like a dry and maybe even repetitive chapter is nevertheless the word of the Lord that is profitable for us today, especially because the end of the story is not David, and it's not even primarily about us. The end of the story is Jesus, and we get to participate in that story as we dive into it today. And David's kingship ultimately anticipates the kingship of Jesus. I like how Patrick Schreiner defines the concept of kingdom in the Bible. He says the kingdom is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. The king's power over the king's people in the king's place. Well, we get to see the true realization of that kingdom in Christ. And that leads to our big idea for today, which is this. The earthly triumph of the Davidic kingdom anticipates the cosmic triumph of the kingdom inaugurated by Jesus. Notice first that this chapter begins with the phrase, after this. Maybe your translation says something like, in the course of time. And likely this was not a strictly chronological formula, but a thematic one in the narrative. Because we actually read about some of these battles elsewhere throughout the book, which means that this wasn't just a single campaign where David went out and he came back home. The reason this whole chapter is inserted here and not elsewhere in the book is because it is closely linked with the Davidic covenant that we just saw in the previous chapter. This isn't just a, a section on trouble in the Middle East. No, rather in chapter seven, God promises to establish the kingdom of David. And in our text, it's like the author is going case in point. And what we have here is like a compilation video of the triumphs of the Davidic kingdom. It's this glorious highlight reel. Like if you were an Israelite reading this later, we're talking, you got the victory song playing, fireworks are going off. This is like the movie, The Patriot. David is portrayed as this victorious warrior king who is utterly triumphant over his enemies. And so we'll get to see three aspects of the triumphant kingdom portrayed here. Three aspects of the triumphant kingdom. And those will be the victories of the kingdom, the rewards of the kingdom, and the administration of the kingdom. So that's where we're headed. For all you note takers, those will be up on the screen eventually, so don't panic. Well, point number one, the victories of the kingdom, the victories of the kingdom. And just as a head, heads up, so you don't get nervous while watching the clock, we will spend a good chunk of our time on this point, so don't get angsty because the other two will be shorter. Well, the author breaks down David's victories into four offensives going in four different directions, north, south, east, and west. This is a bit like watching one of those war documentaries where they show you a map of one nation and it is just dominating the surrounding nations and eventually this whole map consists of a single color. You know what I mean? David's victory is total. It is complete. It is comprehensive. And you see this also because of the language of victory that's repeated over and over again. David defeated, he struck down, he subdued, he took. So let's take a, a look at these four offensives, shall we? First of all, we have victory in the West. We see this in verse one, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. Now, if you've been around the Old Testament much, uh, these guys should be very familiar. 
This nation constantly despises the Lord and his people. Back in the era of the judges, they were essentially Israel's primary enemy. It's the Philistines who kill Saul back in 1 Samuel 31. And here they are again. Now, if you're a careful listener, you might be going, wait, wait, I thought David already defeated the Philistines back in chapter 5. This is like whack-a-mole. And likely what we have here is a resuming of that story. In chapter 5, he drove them out of the land and recaptured the borders. But now we get an additional detail that says he took the city of Methegamah, and I hope I don't have to pronounce that again, which essentially means the chief city, the mother city. He goes in and takes down the capital to end them as a serious threat once and for all. Well, next we have victory in the east. In verse 2, we read that David defeated the Moabites. Moab was another ancient enemy of Israel. And interestingly, it says that David spares only a third of the Moabites. Now, we're not giving any details on why he did, why he did this, why he lines them up this way. In fact, we're not even sure if this is precisely what the Lord commanded of him. Ultimately, the Lord is the final judge in that. But let's be honest, most of us, when we get to difficult narratives like this in the scripture, we kind of squirm in our chairs a little bit. You know what I'm talking about? But we have to understand that ultimately, what is at stake here is not just territorial expansion. As Alistair Begg puts it, what is at issue here is the opposition of the forces of evil to the purposes of the living God. And in that vein, John Calvin comments on this passage and says, the stringency which David exercised against the Moabites ought not to be considered cruelty, but to be considered the just judgment of God, since they had abused his long patience and had mocked him. Too often our problem is that we as sinful creatures cannot comprehend with our feeble minds how God can do such things. Can God really do that? Can he wipe out nations because of their rebellion? Can he send people to hell? And let's admit, these are some of the most difficult questions we wrestle with. But usually our problem is that we have too low a view of the holiness and justice of God and too mild a view of our own depravity. And and maybe, maybe we've even fashioned in our own heads an idea of a God who should just show mercy to everyone. But you see, we cannot understand the mercy of God if we don't understand the justice of God. And even when our weak minds cannot make sense of things like this, we submit to his perfect word. We trust that he is who he says he is, that he is a God who is patient towards sinners like you and I. And yet we also must remember that God's patience does not last forever. And certainly it did not when it came to the Moabites. Well, let's keep moving. Next we have victory in the north. Look at verse three. We read that David defeats Hadadezer. And then he secures power all the way up to the river Euphrates. Now, why is this important? Well, back in Genesis, when God promised the land to Abraham, the Euphrates was the northern boundary. But then, even though the Israelites come in and with Joshua, they come in and conquer the land, they fail to take possession of the entirety of the land that God had promised to them. And it finally happens now through David. God has not forgotten. 
Next, we read that David takes a bunch of horses from, in the, from them, and uh, rather than taking all of them for himself, he hamstrings most of them, leaving them unable to walk. Now, there could have been a practical reason for this, like they couldn't actually maintain all the horses. And also back in Deuteronomy 17, God says, hey, if you're going to have a king, make sure he doesn't acquire too many horses for himself. So maybe David had that in mind. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt. But we don't know for sure. Of course, the next verse in Deuteronomy 17 also says, don't acquire many wives. So maybe David forgot to read the rest of that chapter. So Hadadezer is out here struggling, and he calls up his Syrian friends. They come to help him fight against David. Two armies against one sounds like a pretty good strategy. Nope. David strikes them down too. In fact, he he sets up a military presence, and he brings the surviving Syrians in to be his servants and to bring tribute to him. David is just unstoppable. And in the midst of all this, the author wants us to know something. Look at verse 6. We read, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. This exact sentence is repeated again down in verse 14. The author is going, hey, 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 don't miss the big picture. This isn't just about the might of David. Sure, David is mighty. Sure, he is this powerful warrior king who leads his people into battle. But ultimately, it is the Lord who is giving him victory. It is the Lord who is expanding his borders. It is the Lord who is being faithful to his covenant because he had promised to David, I will give you rest from all your enemies. It's the Lord who is sovereignly orchestrating the events of history to maximize the glory that he receives. It's the Lord who fights for his people. And we see this thread throughout all of scripture, right? Yahweh is a God who fights for his people and by his mighty hand, they get to experience victory. We see this back in Exodus when the Israelites are being chased by the Egyptians. They're backed up against the Red Sea and the people cry out, Moses, why did you bring us out here? We're gonna get slaughtered. And then Moses goes, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. I kind of wondered if, if he just added that last part so that they would have to be quiet. Or you remember the story about when Israel fights the Amalekites? Moses had to hold up his hands the entire time, and if he drops them, the Amalekites begin to prevail. It's not like he was using the force there or something. This was the Lord fighting for his people. We see this all throughout Joshua's conquests. God is leading them into the promised land, driving out their enemies. And we see it later in Nehemiah as Nehemiah reassures his people who are under opposition, and he says, our God will fight for us. And that's the hope of the believer, that the Lord is the one who will ultimately fight for us and bring about the victory. Well, finally, the Lord gives David a victory in the south. In verse 13, we read, And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Once again, we see promise and fulfillment. God said, hey, I will make you a great name. Well, it's happening right here. God is making David's name great. But of course, there's an even greater, more final fulfillment that will take place in Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Notice that as David is conquering these nations, he is also taking some of them captive. They are becoming his servants. In other words, some of the nations actually had to bow the knee to him. But the Davidic kingdom is an earthly one, and David is dead. 
But in the end, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. There will come a day when everyone will recognize that Jesus is the king of all kings. And the reason that God has bestowed on him the name above every name is because Christ has won. David's victories over his enemies look forward to the day when Christ will win. Not in an earthly war, but in a cosmic one. Well, this war begins back in Genesis when Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent and they sin, uh, by, the, uh, by the serpent, and they sin against the Lord. And God curses the serpent and says, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." In other words, there will come from Eve a descendant who will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. And so this setup leaves a tension that's unresolved for the entirety of the Old Testament. Who will gain victory over the serpent? Who's going to be the promised descendant? Well, Adam had failed. Maybe it's, maybe it's Noah. God starts over with him. It's not Noah. doesn't end well for him. Well, maybe it's Abraham. Not Abraham, though it will come through his seed. It's not Moses, it's not Joshua, it's none of the judges. Well, maybe it's Saul. Well, no, that's the people's king. Well, maybe it's David, this is God's king. But even David's victory is earthly and limited. And ultimately, David falls into egregious sin. And as you continue on, you realize that none of these leaders, none of these kings are fit for the job. Instead, we need the very God who gave David a victory to come in the form of flesh and to secure salvation for his people. Only he can do it. But of course, when Jesus comes, he's a rather, he's a rather unexpected king. He conquers no land. He has no army. He doesn't free the Jews from the Roman regime. And rather than being a conqueror, it kind of seems like Jesus is the one who is conquered. What kind of king is this? A king who rides into Jerusalem not on a chariot, but on a donkey. A king who wears not a crown of jewels, but a crown of thorns. A king who is dressed in a royal robe as he is mocked by Roman soldiers. A king whose coronation ceremony leads him to the throne that is actually the cross that he dies on. And above him, a sign that reads, King of the Jews. He's like a king who dies like a criminal in shame. But in this moment, when it seemed like the serpent has defeated the king, in fact, he had only bruised his heel. The author of Hebrews in chapter 2 writes that Jesus took on flesh and blood, and he says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the promised offspring. This is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. We read in Colossians 1, And you, who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, before God's perfect law, we have a massive record of debt that stands against us. 
a record of debt that we could not pay on our own. But Christ fulfilled all of the legal demands. He obeyed God's perfect standard, lived a perfect life. And it says that he took our record of debt and nailed it to the cross. And the good news is, even though this king dies, he doesn't stay dead. This king rises from the grave three days later to show that he has defeated death and sin and Satan and his servants. It says he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. I love what Augustine says. He says, from his cross, he has conquered kings. And by the way, this isn't like some cosmic battle of good versus evil going on where we're left wondering what is going to happen? Who is going to win? In the Middle Ages, there was even a theory of the atonement that went around called ransom theory, which suggested that when Adam and Eve sinned, the devil got a hold of humanity, and so God had to pay the devil a ransom sacrifice in the form of his son in order to free us. Let's just agree, not biblical, okay? God didn't buy us back from Satan, though I'm afraid some people still think like that. This also isn't the Facebook meme where Jesus is arm wrestling Satan. You know, what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? We're not wondering who is going to win. No, Satan and the rest of God's enemies have been decisively defeated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this isn't just a defeat over the devil alone. The theme of the serpent in the Bible encompasses all of God's enemies. This defeat includes all of Satan's servants. It includes all of those who oppose the Lord and who will ultimately have to face his wrath unless they turn to him in faith. That triumph was ordained by God before the foundation of the world. Now, there's so many implications we can get into here, but let me just briefly give you three points of application. The first one is assurance. Assurance. You want to be sure of your salvation? First and foremost, look to Jesus. Should your life look different after Christ? Absolutely. But your flawed obedience is going to be shaky ground for assurance. Look first to his victory on the cross before you look to the evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. Meditate on these truths. A second point of application, victory over sin. When you become a believer, you are given new desires and you begin to love what God loves and hate what God hates. And for those who are in Christ, you get to participate in his victory as you wage war against your own flesh. And for the believer who's been fighting for so long, let me just encourage you, hold on and keep fighting. Keep waging war because Christ has won. The book of Revelation speaks of believers as those who overcome by the blood of the lamb. Or maybe you've never even tasted victory at all. Maybe you realize my sin rules over me. I am a slave to my passions. I'm not living for the Lord at all. The call for you is repent and put your faith in Christ. The only victory that you can claim is the victory of Christ. And a third point of application, resurrection hope. Resurrection hope. Because of Christ's victory and his resurrection, we get to say along with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We don't live as those without hope. And this isn't like a, oh, I hope so. No, no, no. If, if Jesus won, then we are certain we will rise with him again. I love that line that we sing as a church. Death is just the doorway into resurrection life. If I join you in your sufferings, then I'll join you when you rise. Do we believe that? 
the certainty of our future resurrection anchors us in this present life. This is the cosmic triumph of the kingdom inaugurated by Jesus, and the victories of the Davidic kingdom anticipate that triumph. Well, the second aspect of the triumphant kingdom, point number two, is the rewards of the kingdom. The rewards of the kingdom, and we get to see that in verses 7 through 12. David doesn't just achieve victory, he brings home the bacon. He brings home the spoils. Look with me to verse 7. David had just defeated Hadadezer in the north, and then we read, David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Barathai, he took very much bronze. Now, David here had every opportunity at this point to make himself extremely wealthy, but instead, instead he, he brings these spoils to Jerusalem. And what this means, we read a few verses down, is that he dedicates all of these spoils to the Lord. All of these would go into the treasury of the sanctuary and become assets that were used by priests. And I love the little story here about the king named Toy, which as a dad, most of you dads understand me, I really have to hold myself back from any embarrassing puns here. Like the guy's name is Toy, right? It's like bait. Anyway, this guy is a classic politician. Check this out. Hadadezer is south of him, and they've been fighting for years, and Toy hears about how David just keeps expanding north and how he is defeating Hadadezer. So, of course, he's thinking, oh, boy, I got to get on David's good side. So here's his plan. He sends his own son, Joram, which this would have been a big deal. It's not some random messenger. He is sending his best, his very own son, and he gathers all these treasures to bring to David to appease him as a big thank you gift for defeating their common enemy. He's probably hoping he can get some peace treaty out of this. And I love this. It says that Joram asks about his health. He's like, hey, David, congrats. How are you holding up? How's your health? You thinking about retirement yet? Oh, by the way, we, uh, we hope you accept our humble contributions. There's a lot of goodies in here. And I love verse 11. It just says, these also King David dedicated to the Lord. David's like, okay, thank you. I'll just take them straight to the sanctuary. Now, for what it's worth, there's something to learn here from David. When we read, the Lord gave victory to David, he believed that. He didn't come off of those victories thinking that he deserved the spoils, that God owes him something. But instead, David recognizes Yahweh as the true source of his success. He takes these extra resources that the Lord graciously gives him, and rather than building up his own bank account, he dedicates them to the Lord. How many of us treat our wealth that way? Or do you find yourself saying, well, I'll start giving when I make a little more. But that threshold always just keeps getting higher and higher, doesn't it? And that's not to say that it's wrong to be wealthy, but don't forget that everything you have is from the Lord to begin with. Every opportunity you've been given, it's because he gave it to you. And we are called to steward our money well and to be sacrificially generous for the sake of his kingdom. But that's not even the point I want to drive home here. David accumulates all of these rewards for the kingdom, but Jesus, the truer David, does one better. Jesus accumulates invaluable blessings for his people and his kingdom. And these rewards, let me tell you, they're way better than silver and gold, way better than financial independence and a huge savings account. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1. Feel free to flip over there if you want to follow along. We'll go through a few verses. Ephesians 1, 
He says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Christian, get this. The cosmic triumph of Christ has resulted in you being rewarded every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. Well, what are these blessings? We can just keep reading. Verse four, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He didn't look down the corridors of time to see if you would believe. No, he, in his grace, set his favor on you before this world even existed. He chose you in Christ. Verse five, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. He's welcomed you into his family. You're no longer orphans, but sons. You now have a heavenly father whom you have access to by the blood of Christ. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood. You're no longer your own. You've been redeemed by Christ. You are his possession now. The forgiveness of our trespasses, all of your sins, past, present, future. There's no condemnation left for you because Christ drank every last drop of that cup of wrath. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. What is that? It's Christ himself for all of eternity. Verse 13, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We don't have to wonder like David whether God will one day have a temple where he can dwell with his people. God himself dwells in his people. We are the temple now because the spirit lives in us. It is the spirit who regenerates us and makes us new and conforms us to the image of Christ. The spirit is the seal of our salvation. He is like the king's royal stamp. He is the promise, the guarantee that we will one day behold Jesus face to face. This is every spiritual blessing. And there's so much more beyond this passage, isn't there? We're given true joy. We're given a peace that surpasses all understanding. We're given the ability to persevere. We have the church, the fellowship of believers. These are the rewards of the kingdom of God. These are the spoils, the blessings that Christ has secured for his covenant people. So we've seen the victories of the kingdom and the rewards of the kingdom. Finally, let's look at the administration of the kingdom. The administration of the kingdom, that's our final point. Verses 15 through 18. We have this passage that closes off a, a large section of First and Second Samuel going all the way back to 1 Samuel 15. Imagine this is like the rise of volume, uh, the rise of David volume is completed. And verse 15 is like this summary verse of David's rule as a king. It says, so David reigned over all Israel and he administered justice and equity to all his people. Like if David had a resume that describes his career path up to this point, it would be something like this. Shepherd, mostly played guitar to my sheep. Number two, anointed but not actual king of Israel. Confusing time in my career path, figuring things out. And number three, king, reigned over all Israel, administered justice and equity to all my people. This is the kingdom ideal. It's the Davidic kingdom as it should be. God's king ruling in God's place over God's people. This is like the golden age of Israel. Maybe outside of Solomon's reign, it really doesn't get much better than this. David administered justice and equity. Isn't it interesting how our culture has been using these terms a lot, except with very different definitions? Somehow justice includes the right to murder the unborn, Equity typically implies equality of outcome without any regard for objectivity and truth. 
partiality is applauded when it occurs towards certain groups but not others. The arbiters of justice are those who don't even believe in objective truth. Like in that case, who gets the final say on what is just and equitable? And the answer is, the Lord does. God alone gets to determine what is true and just and holy. God is a God who judges without partiality. He is a God who, in fact, displayed his perfect justice on the cross as Christ bore his wrath against sin. Because if God is a just God, then he must punish sin. In fact, there, there is no sin that goes unpunished. The only difference is whether Christ bears your punishment or you bear it yourself for all of eternity. But no sin goes unpunished. And also, that's actually really good news. Like, we have every reason to rejoice that no evil will go unpunished. And at the same time, we rejoice because we who are in Christ have been shown mercy rather than judgment. Not because of anything that we have done, but purely because of his grace. And we live in that tension, don't we? Like, on the one hand, we, we hate when we see actual injustice done in the world, and we look forward to the day when all evil will come to an end. And on the other hand, we want those very same people to receive the grace of Christ, to bow the knee to the King of Kings, the truer David, the King who rules with perfect justice and equity. And finally, this volume, The Rise of David, closes off with a list of David's officials. Whenever a new president is elected, because I know you guys are all so excited for that to start up again, one of the first things everyone wants to know is who is going to be in his cabinet? Well, this is David's cabinet, if you will. These are his right-hand men, his loyal officials. So let's check out this lineup. First, we have Joab. This, this guy is basically David's general. He's been known for his loyalty and his faithfulness to David, and he shows up in the story a lot later on. There's Jehoshaphat. He's the recorder. He would inform the king, advise him. He would communicate the king's commands to the people. Zadok and Ahimelech. These guys were direct descendants of Aaron, so they were priests in the Davidic kingdom. Sarah is basically the secretary of state. Benaiah is over, the da is over David's uh, private militia, his bodyguard. What's interesting is that he also was actually the son of a priest. And then finally, David's sons were priests. Now, some people have wondered if this is problematic, like why are David's sons priests? But likely they were only performing some priestly duties, which was actually common for sons to do. So there you go. That was David's cabinet. And here's the thing. If David was a king whose aim was righteousness, then his administration reflected that. He wasn't just looking for guys who would do the job well. No, he's looking for those who can stand with him in obedience to the Lord. He's looking for those who can uphold justice and equity in his administration. And church, the same is true of us because we are a part of God's kingdom. If you are in Christ, you have a role in God's kingdom. There are no extras, who, nobody who is just on the sidelines, nobody who snuck in and gets to go along for the ride. No, we are called to follow after our king in obedience and faithfulness in the offices that he's placed us. In your workplace, as a mother or a father, a husband or a wife, as a student, in all of your offices, you are called to serve your king through obedience to his law. And of course, this is gospel-motivated obedience. The good news is that in light of the victory of Jesus, God's law is no longer something that condemns us, but something that compels us. 
as those who have been saved through the gospel, God's law is not something that burdens us. Instead, it becomes our delight. One of our values here at Doxa is work for Christ. We don't do that for grace, but because of grace, in light of the grace that we've been shown. We work for Christ because he is a worthy king. We follow a king who didn't just go out to battle for us, he laid down his life for us. On the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins such that anyone who puts their faith in Christ, he will receive by grace. Maybe you need to do that. This is a king who rose from the dead, ascended to the Father. This is a king who came once to inaugurate the kingdom here on earth, and he is coming again in all of his glory, and when he does, his triumph will be consummated. Well, in Revelation 20, we see the final defeat of Satan, the final blow. God's people get to dwell with him without the curse of sin and without the influence of evil. And the apostle John calls them conquerors, those who had overcome. Not on their own, of course, but through the cosmic triumph of Christ. We look forward to that day. And until then, we fight the good fight. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for this reminder of the cosmic triumph of Christ. He has won And we know that he is the king of kings and eventually every knee will bow down. Lord, I pray for anybody here who doesn't know this king yet. Lord, may you, by your grace, save them this morning. I pray that we would go out of here empowered by the Holy Spirit to live for our king faithfully in whatever office we might have. May you be blessed and glorified. In your holy name we pray, amen.